did this in our four o'clock service, and I'm gonna do it again. And <clears throat> I'm gonna take a moment to have a, just take a moment of pastoral privilege. Um, there's a lot of things going on in our nation, and I think uh, a lot of us wonder what we could do, what we should do. Um, and I'd like to give two suggestions, two humble suggestions. One is something we can do immediately and every day. And the other is something I think we'll have to take some time to learn. And I'd like to suggest we learn it together. Firstly, I, when, I, when I think about anything going on, the question I always have to myself is what would Jesus do? And when I, I look at all the comments flying around social media, and you know, you hear them in a, a waiting line at a store, just wherever you are, people are talking. Every, everybody seems to have an opinion. And, and um, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? This is what I think Jesus would do. I think he would enter in. That's what I think he would do. Where do I get that from? The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. The Bible tells me that he, he came and dwelt among us, and he dwelt in the flesh, and we beheld him the glory of God. He entered in with us. So if you see some things and they kind of upset you, imagine what the view from heaven must look like. What upsets him? What would he do? He would enter in. And I think in <coughs> Jesus' day, it probably could have totally upset some people, but he would have had no problem with someone snapping a photo of him and putting hashtag lepers lives matter. Well, think about women. They were in the minimum, wrongly ignored, in the regular, taken for granted and abused. But what did Jesus do? He met them and dealt with them and trusted them and loved them. The woman at the well, I think if someone had snapped a picture, Jesus would have had no problem with someone. Hashtag, women's lives matter. How about children? It would have been nothing to discard a child in those days, just like it's nothing to discard a child in these days. Jesus would set one in the midst and use it as an example. I think Jesus would have been okay with hashtag children's lives matter. It's really easy to speak, to speak flippantly about things. But I, I want to accept the challenge to say what would Jesus do. And I want to enter in with people. I don't even have to agree with him. I don't think he agreed with me. I don't think they have to be right. I wasn't right. If we waited for everybody to get right, Jesus would have never entered in and nobody would be saved. You know, so I don't think we have to wait for people to be right. Because you know what? We don't, we're not always right ourselves, right? Right. So enter in with people. Enter in. Be like Jesus. And enter into situations where you're completely offended. And enter into love. That's what Jesus would do. Secondly, I put a challenge. Ooh, suddenly I got loud. Mm -hmm. I put a challenge in the bulletin, the bookatin. Look at your bookatin. Put an excerpt from a book in there. Um, it's a this article from Cross <coughs> I read a lot of articles by this author. I don't know how to pronounce his name, and I don't want to embarrass myself. He's got a book coming out in July, and it's a book on racial reconciliation and learning how to lament together. And I'd like to challenge some of you guys to. Put your 17 bucks in the pot. Put your time to read the book in the pot. Let's have a group discussion. And the book really teaches us how to lament together for hurtful things. 
And I'd like to challenge you. And you know, I, th I think uh, I think if you're in middle school and on up, I think uh, you could definitely handle this book. And parents of younger children, I think it'd be a challenge to find a way to to read it and have some conversations with your kids. To, to I'm not saying um, uh, make it uh, simple. Just make it elementary. Amen. And I'd, I'd like to, you guys to think about that. I'd like to order the books next week, pre-order them. And they're supposed to come in, I think, July 14th. Uh, not come in, but uh, be out in the press. And if you pre-order, you'll be some of the first ones to get them. I'd like to challenge you guys to do that. And, um, so, two things. Enter in, and let's talk. Let's get some of these things out in the open and agree with God about them. Stop living in our echo chamber come out and not be afraid to have different thoughts and different discussions. Thank you for letting me take that pastoral privilege. I feel like it's a punch in the gut. You guys are looking at me like the first crowd did. <laughs> at the same time, uh, I think we're living in some very serious times and godly people, godly people, they rush toward them. They don't run from them. That's why Christians have always led the way in building orphanages and hospitals and abuse clinics because we rush to the trouble. Wouldn't it be great if the church rushed to the trouble and entered in? Say, Tim, what should I do? I know you should enter in. Beyond that is a complex issue that requires a ton of things. And I just want to start what's in my control. I want to enter in with people and love them right where they are, just like Jesus would. Let's open our Bibles together. Job 42. I know I've used up about half of my sermon time. And, oh, that was the other piece of housekeeping. Casey... While we're in this, still in this phase and spread out and having multiple services, we will continue to, 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 to endeavor, endeavor, <laughs> to, to keep going with some briefer services. I can't wait till sharing time is back. We have a lot of things to share with one, one another. Job 42, uh, the first six verses, and then you might be happy to hear this, I don't know, but we'll, we'll wrap this series up next week. And I uh, think, Casey, we're going to go into Habakkuk. Or you can say Habakkuk, <laughs> Habakkuk, uh, after that. And I'm uh, very excited about that series as well. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not, did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Father, open this word to us as only your divine work and hand could. Move us past it as a literary device and help us to meet the master, the author, the writer. And then write something in our hearts in eternal ink. Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. I have two questions and one statement, and these three will be my points, and it's it's sort of simple. It's so simple that I'll, by the time I'm done, someone will have said, I could have preached that. Amen, you could have. Question number one, who am I? That's the question that is on all of our hearts, truth be told, and that's the question that Job has finally come to. If you'll remember last week when we were dealing with Elihu's comments to uh, Job, you know, he basically says, God is saying to you, who do you think you are? Excuse me, last week, God dealing with Job. Who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are? And it was actually two weeks ago, the comments from Elihu were basically the same thing. Job, who do you think you are? Now Job is saying, who am I? And if you'll notice in the passage, he handles this by going back to the two questions that God asked him. If you'll look in verse number three, he's, this is the question that God asked him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And so Job answers him. I was talking out the side of my neck. That's a direct quote. Y'all can look at that. <clears throat> That's what Job says. He says, man, if God is asking me who is this talking, I'm answering God now. Who am I to talk like this? If God is saying, who do you think you are? God, I realize that I'm nothing and no one compared to you. Then that second question uh, is more of a statement, but verse 4, God says, here and I'll speak to you. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job says, I thought I knew something, but now I realize I didn't. I thought I knew you, and now I'm really seeing you. Job is having this in-your-face moment where he's really realizing who he is. Speaking of Satan, Job 41, verse 31, God says, and listen, this carefully says two parts. Listen to it. He, he being Satan, sees everything that is high. He sees everything that is exalted. Uh, any of you guys ever had that dad or that grandparent who had that chair, and you would sometimes do it for fun, you'd go jump in their chair, and they'd walk in and just do this thing. Like, get out of my chair. I love to do that to my dad. I mean, even when I was like 40. You know, I love to sit in this chair just to aggravate him. Well, Satan sees everybody that's just try to just try to put themselves on a pedestal, just try to sit up high. Everything that thinks too much of itself. Now, now look at the second half of Job 41-34. Second half says this, he is king over all the sons of pride. In one place in the New Testament, Jesus says, I know who you guys are. You guys are sons of the devil. Sons of the devil. Because you don't understand what I'm saying to you. You're a son of the father of lies. And here God is saying he is also king of the pride. He's the king of of, of those of the sons of pride. So imagine this. You, you know, he's saying you're of the family of Satan because you don't know me, and you join the kingdom of Satan because you're prideful. Wow. Wow. So that's the accusation that God levels against Job, and all of it really floors Job. But this accusation drives out, remember what I told you, MacArthur said, uh, and I've since learned, I don't know whether MacArthur was quoting Piper or Piper was quoting MacArthur or both of them were getting it from the Spirit. But both of them use that phrase, residue of pride. God wants to drive out even the residue of pride. Why? Because anything that is the sons of pride has, is, is, is under the ruler of the king, Satan. Satan is the king of all those prideful things. Now, when Job has this realization that he's no one, I, I, I mean, I don't want anyone to mistakenly think that Job is succumbing to the unjust allegations of Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. He's not. Their unjust allegations were not correct. But I do think he is coming under the wise counsel of Elihu. He is saying, man, God's trying to speak to me. God's trying to deal with me. Now, God has spoken to me. Why was God trying to speak to me and deal with me? Because God wanted to drive out the residue of pride. God wanted to keep me from the pit. God wanted to set me on the straight road. Amen? Amen. So I want to listen to God because I want to be taken out of the pit, set on the straight road, and I want the residue of pride to be taken out of me. 
And he's come to that startling realization. He's now aware of his pride. And he's aware that he's called God to the question. And like, it's sort of like, how dare you call God to the question? It's like Job is realizing that he is behaving like a child of the devil. And now he is hearing the voice of his true father. Wow. Can anybody ever say you've been in that situation? Where you're behaving like a child of the devil? Even for a day, a moment, a, a, a time. And, you, and then the, the voice of the father breaks in. And you go, wait a minute, whose child are you? Now that Job is standing only in accurate self-inspection, he now faces this dual danger. Accurate self-inspection can lead to either a towering growth of pride or a killing tool of fatalism. In other words, he can look at himself and go, I'm the man, and that's dangerous. Or he can look at himself and go, I'm so worthless, I should just die. That's why I love Psalm 88. If you've ever read Psalm 88, the guy's talking to God, and he feels lower than dirt. Matter of fact, he said, it'd been better if I'd never been born, it'd be better if I die. That's a general expression. But he's talking to God about it. In other words, he has this accurate self-inspection. He has this accurate view of his feelings. But he also says, uh, I've got hope. Because with accurate self-inspection, you will either depart from God through your pride or depart from God through your despair unless you center on God and find hope. And that's what Job is doing. We're at this place in Job 42, verses 1 through 6, where we see that Job's mind needs to and does turn to God. What is the lesson we can learn from this? God will put his people in the dust. He will. God will use pain. God will use trouble. But he will put his people in the dust that he might stand them up in the face of his glory. He has a reason for these things. Job's mind needs to and does turn to the thoughts of God, which brings us to that second question. Who is God? Great question. Job, it seems, through his testimony throughout the book, was aware and convinced of God's existence, that God was powerful, that God was sovereign. He knew it as information, I believe, though. Do you guys believe that it's possible to know of God and still not know him? You know, do you think it's possible? think it's possible to go through the routine of religion on a regular basis without having a relationship with the living God? Do you think it's easy, even for someone who does know God, who has experienced the goodness of God, to, to, to get to go into the routine and not experience God on a regular basis? Last week, Grant uh, Solomon and I started going through experiencing God, and I was trying to think of how many people I've gone through that study with. And the whole point of the study is, is, is the title. Experiencing God, not just experiencing information. And we just had a wonderful discussion today about our first week of studying. And, and we couldn't even get through it all. We had a lot of an hour, and we couldn't even get through our, our five days of, of study. I think we only got through about 3.1 3 days. We were just delighted because we we're both digging in there to experience God. I started pulling out my notebooks. And every time I go through this with somebody, I buy a new workbook, and I go through it afresh. I don't want to look at my old notes. I want to take new notes. See, I want to experience God today. I don't want to just experience my notes. And, and this is where God really wants to bring us. Not just that we know stuff about him, that we're at a certain place, at a certain time, listening to a certain person, check. 
I can rattle off X amount of verses. Check. I own X translations of the Bible. Check. I know these songs. Check. I even have this many on my uh, music playing device. God wants us to walk with him. And I believe what this reveals is that Job was a man who had a religious habit, but God wanted him to be relationally alive. Also, as we, I'm going to move quickly through this. You might want to grab a pen. I think this is worth writing down. What I'm getting ready to say. I really do. When he says, I, 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 thought I, I thought I knew about you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. That is a huge confession. And I believe that there are six things here that if we can begin to think through these things on a daily basis, declare them and experience them, I believe they will radically alter our life. And in Job's humility, he has been driven to the dust. He's going to be stood up in the face of God's glory, and he has found the framework for which he can be a humble and powerful worshiper. Let's go through these really fast. Look back at Job number 42, uh, chapter 42, verse number 2. He says there again, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There are two creedal confessions, I believe, we can pull from that. Number one, I know your power can do anything. I know your power can do anything. Somebody say amen. amen. Look at your neighbor and tell them, I know God's power can do anything. Tell them. Secondly, I believe what this verse shows us is that your purpose, I know your purpose will be accomplished for me. I know your purpose will be accomplished for me. In verse 42, I know you can do all things. Uh, in verse 2, I know no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If God is all-powerful and has a purpose for you, then nothing's going to stop God's purposes. Nothing. That's when you go to Romans 8, you see neither heights above, depths below, all the power, nothing is going to separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody say amen. amen. Thirdly, look at verse 3. Verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's the question God asked Job. Here's the realization I, he came to. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. This is, this is what he realized. I know your will is good for me. And this is the whole core of Job's argument. What are you doing, God? Why are you interrupting my comfort, my plans, my leisure? Here's the conclusion he's come to. God, I know your will is good for me. I know your power can do anything. I know your purpose will be accomplished for me. I know your will is good for me. Look at verse 5. He says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He is, in essence, saying here, the creed I want to pull out from this, the creed I want to direct my life is this. I know your presence is is real to me. And this is where the rubber really meets the road. You can say these affirmations, but if you miss the God that, that provokes them, then the affirmations are just words. They're not powerful frameworks for living. But if you can say, I've spent time with God, I'm spending time with God, I am abiding, he's real to me. And we say, I know your power can do anything for me. I know your purpose will be accomplished for me. I know your will is good for me. And I know your presence is real. And because I know your presence is real, I know you're working your power. I know you're working your purpose. I know you are unfolding your will. And finally, of this short list of five things, I think I said six, but it's five. I'll learn how to count one day. I have them Roman numerals. I guess I could get my Roman numeralizer. 
Look at verse 6. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think the creedal confession I would like to come out of this, that I would say out of this is, I know your grace is given to me. It is grace that you see yourself for who you are. It's grace that you see the glory of God and respond accurately in the face of that glory. It is grace, it is unmerited favor that we in our deadness, in our sin, in our apathy are, are shown the face of God. I believe these, these five statements, if we, we can experience God and these five statements become our creed to, to powerful living, I believe it's possible. I know your power can do anything. Just imagine. This is not that limp misuse of, uh, you know, uh, people misuse that verse from Philippians all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That often puts the onus on your will and yourself. He's saying, I know you can do anything. I know you can do it. I know your purpose is going to be accomplished. I know your will is good for me. I know your presence is real to me. I know your grace is given to me. Man, I see time is just flying by. Let me share a quick story. Recently, we were going through these self-assessments at My Life Matters, and, and we were talking through them, like doing them live. And, um, you know, Andrew's here. He can testify. Uh, and you remember I shared this same sort of opening story with everybody. I talked about that proverb that says, iron sharpens iron. And I was saying, like, often we feel like the, the, the God's goal is the friction. Like, and we don't like that. I, I don't, God, uh, I see you're doing this friction thing again, and uh, I think it stinks. Could we back off of that? Uh, but it's not. Friction is God's tool. Sharpness is God's goal. Sharpness is also a tool, yeah, amen. But a lot of times we back off of the friction. Job's life teaches us friction is powerful. It's powerful. He, he comes into this fresh insight of God. Who am I? I'm nobody. Who are you? You, everything. The onus is off of me. And if we don't think pride is visiting in us today, then just think about how you handle everything on social media these days. Uh, I, I joke, I, I can start an argument with guys in just a few minutes. All I got to do is start talking about Duke, Carolina, NC State. Uh, if you come from where I come from, you can get in that whole Chevy Ford thing and you got an argument. It's like this fast. You can just mention Democrats and Republicans and you're going to start an argument. Um, why? Most of it's pride. No, not most of it. It's just pride. And if you don't think you have any pride, then drive down Main Street, take a left onto the boulevard, and drive it all the way out past Walmart. We're full of pride. We think anybody that's not going as fast as we want to go or faster than we want to go or turning before we want them to turn, what in the world are you guys doing invading my life? I mean, I just remember the other day I walked in the food line and, and right, right over here on, on, the, on the northern end of town, and they didn't have any strawberry lemonade. And I just stood staring at it disbelief. I'm just, I'm just like this. And I must have looked dumb because somebody said, Tim, you okay? I said, frankly, no. And I walked right around the corner and I looked in that freezer and there was no chocolate mousse trap. And I am indignant. I said, the cotton-picking nerve of person counting. I mean, just the unmitigated, foolish selfishness. I was mad. Ice cream and lemonade. Come on, y'all. 
We are so ensconced in pride that it is the cultural norm. We actually hold it up like a banner. It's no wonder God wants to humble this nation. And the people hearing it. And we need these sharp realizations that we're not much. And he's everything. Who am I? Nobody. Who is God? He's everything. After Job's encounter with God, my, my third and final point that will go very fast because I want to close with an illustration that's meaningful to me. I hope it will be to you. After Job's encounter with God, Job has a new sense of self and a new understanding of God. Here's what I contend. Here's what I contend. I contend the man or woman who is proud has never had a full encounter with God. I wasn't even going to do this illustration, but since Katie and Rachel are here, it just popped it. Do you guys remember, you are a little bit younger than you are now, we're going through the drive-thru at McDonald's. And do you remember the lady was just flat going off? You know, they got these dual lines. Y'all remember this? She's just going off on the people. And I had sort of, you know, I went, her windows were down, my windows were down. So I was talking sort of quietly to Katie and Rachel, and I was like, the entire contents of that building are not worth how she's treating. And she looked over and saw me. She goes, Preacher Bose. I'm sorry you had to hear that. You remember what I said to her? I said, I'm sorry you had to say it. I said, you know, you don't need to be apologizing to me. It was God and that person. You remember I told you, I said, don't ever treat somebody like that. You know, and then she was in the line trying to justify her behavior. And I just frankly said to her, have a nice day, because, you know, if I didn't move on, I'd start speaking up, and I need to hush up and get out. So I rolled on up in the line, you know. <laughs> She's wrong. All the contents of every fast food restaurant in this town is not worth mistreating one human being because something ain't going right to your order. And if we can illustrate this so quickly and clearly and relate to it so thoroughly, then imagine how many areas of our lives are we so deeply embedded in pride that every offense triggers us into a storm of selfishness that wrecks our relationship with God. Yes, indeed, God will put his child in the dust, but his goal is to stand us up in the face of glory. I would also say this, if I said that the man who is proud has not yet had a full encounter with God, I would say the Christian that is living in pride has of late not experienced it. You know, and you guys know, you guys know me, right? I'm thinking the Michael Jackson song now, right? I'm looking at the man in the mirror. <laughs> What's that next line? I'm asking him to change his way. We have an experience. I think God is looking at us and going like, man, okay, if you're so full of pride that face masks and a little distance and inconvenience has wrecked your life, and this sort of pride is not a residue, it's a resident. And it needs to be driven plumb out of you. Let me see if I can close with this illustration. 
So I went in this morning, you know, often, often Karen and I don't sleep in the same bed because of my back. I wind up sleeping in a recliner 99.9% of the time. But I went into the bedroom this morning rather early under the pretense of getting some socks. I wanted to cuddle. I could not find care because of the pillow. I counted them. There were exactly 74,000 on the <laughs> And she's waking up. You want to lay down? And she's trying to pull this pillow. She's half on this one. She's half uh, like, oh, no, I'm good. If something as innocuous as a pillow can illustrate how even an inanimate, amoral object can become suddenly an evil in the face of desired intimacy, then what about all the foolish things we entertain on a regular basis? Y'all want me to redneck that up for y'all? If we see how a stinky pillow can mess up a good hug, then what kind of stuff we got in our life that's keeping God off of us? Here's his lovely commitment to you. He will smash what you cherish for the sake of cherishing you. If Job teaches me anything, he teaches me that God will put his child in the dust but it is so that he can stand him up in the face of glory. He is committed to your relationship. You know, you get to loving that Mustang too much, watch out, your daddy might come for it. I mean, right? Uh, I don't even know anybody here that loves gardening, like just love it so much that you spend an inordinate amount of time. God might just kill you gardening. Anybody here ever had a dream that distracted you from God and watched him smash your dream? Anybody here ever had a relationship? I have. I, I've, like, I've never owned a Mustang, but you know, I've, I've owned something, right? I could put me on the spot easy. I'm not picking on cars, I'm picking on humanity. This is the way we are. What if your father treasures you so much and he's so zealous for his glory and so desirous for your holiness and your intimacy that he will put you in the dust just to bring you into the face of glory? Wow. So here's my invitation. I've been quoting it a lot lately. I have. That's a song, The Man from Galilee. Take a good long look at yourself. Put your hand in the hand from Mount Galilee. You know what happens is you, you look at others differently. You look at everything differently. If we're, if we're shining in the light of his glory, that's one song there. I'll throw another one in. Everything else will become dim in the light of his glory and grace. If we don't choose to dim it, he may choose to crush it. If we don't let the glory dim it, He'll make the glory dim. So here's my invitation. Take a good long look at yourself. You'll look at others differently by putting your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. What is in your life that needs to take a back seat so that God can drive? Father, thank you for a chance to share from your word. Lord, I realize I've labored the point longer than I intended. I trust your spirit will give it its good work. Now, Father, as 
we take time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Bring us to that good place of seeing the body and the blood that's good for us and good for eternity. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.